You're listening to The Maastricht Diplomat. Welcome back, everyone, to Understanding Europe podcast series. And we are very excited about this episode because it's the first episode of 2023. And uh, this is a very exciting one because we take a look at the changing global trade environment as new global powers emerge who start to straddle the line between developing and developed economies. We are joined by Clara Weinhardt, Assistant Professor of International Relations at FASOS, whose recent research explores this topic, specifically how Brazil, India, and China have been responding to the developed countries pushing to change their privilege in the World Trade Organization as developing economies, and how this may evolve in the future. So let's get into it. Welcome, Clara, and thank you so much for joining us in this episode. Thank you for having me. Maybe first, maybe for students who are not in uh, the European studies environment, as for myself, what is the WTO? What's the World Trade Organization? So the World Trade Organization is a multilateral organization. It has 164 members, and its main purpose is to facilitate trade. So it's a pretty liberal organization because the core idea is to facilitate trade liberalization and the free flow of goods and services across borders. And this may sound terribly abstract, but if you think about all the goods you buy, the price for which you can buy them in a shop, it depends also in part on whether or not your country imposes tariffs or other measures when these goods are imported. And this, this is why it also affects each and every one of us, whether or not the global economy is super uh, protectionist and all countries have a lot of restrictive trade measures or not, because if they do, prices are going to go up. So all the members in the World Trade Organization, they come together mm -hmm. and negotiate the rules for trade. And the one that is that probably most of you have heard about are tariffs. So if you import a good, you may have to pay a tariff. For instance, now with the UK leaving the European Union, suddenly you have to pay a tariff if you import goods from, from the UK. There are other measures that can restrict the free flow uh, of trade, and it can get very technical and complex, uh, but it can also relate to subsidies or regulations that other countries may see as a, an additional cost if they are trading goods across the borders. So in the World Trade Organizations, the countries come together and decide which measures should be allowed. So where are countries allowed to protect maybe their own national industries with mm. these measures? And where should we see uh, more of a free flow of goods and uh, services across borders? And then the idea is that not every country goes and negotiates with every other country in the world bilaterally but that they all come together and agree on rules that apply to everyone. So in the WTO, if the EU agrees to lower the tariff on cars, this tariff applies vis-a-vis -vis all other members of the World Trade Organization. So it doesn't have to negotiate bilaterally with all of these other countries. And when we talk about the EU then in the WTO or the World Trade Organization, are we talking about each member state on its own or does the EU represent all the member states in the WTO? So again, formally, all members of the European Union are also members of the World Trade Organization. But because trade is a, an exclusive competence of uh, the European Union, it's actually the Commission 
that represents the European member states in these negotiations. But all member states also have individual missions to the WTO, so they participate in the, in the preparatory talks and are very much involved in what is going on. When was it founded and why is it actually there? So the World Trade Organization itself is relatively new. It was founded only in 1995, but it has a predecessor, the General Agreement on Tariffs on Trade, also referred to as the GATT, that was founded uh, in 1947, so after the end of the Second World War. And it was a reaction also that in the interwar years, there was a lot of protectionism and a lot of countries increased tariffs and other measures, and it became very costly. So after the Second World War, it was primarily pushed for by the US, but also the UK to say, like, let's have a more liberal trading system and let's come uh, sit together and prevent these spikes of protectionism uh, from happening. And it's also important to, of course, have in mind what were the interests behind it, because after the Second World War, the US was the major exporter globally. So the U.S. also stood to benefit a lot from an open global trading system because that meant its goods can also enter other markets uh, at a lower cost, so to say. With that being said, is there then a kind of power play between the members who, who gets to decide what are the policies to be followed? How does it actually work to implement a policy? Do they vote on it? Or can you push for a policy more if you are a more developed country than a developing country? Is there a power play in that? That's a good question because formally there's equality among all members of the trading system. So when the GATT was founded in 47, uh, it just had 23 members, but it meant each member has the same voting power and there needs to be consensus. But of course, informally, power works in different ways. And it was primarily the US, the UK and other Western powers setting the rules. And this you can see is when they agreed what kind of exceptions should be allowed. Um, they protected, for instance, the agricultural sector. And this was highly subsidized in, in these uh, Western countries, and it was an area where they didn't think it would be beneficial to liberalize this. Conversely, who has an interest in a liberal uh, agricultural sector? It's a lot of smaller um, developing countries that are exporting agricultural, agricultural goods to these markets. So their interests didn't really get hurt. A, because many of them weren't members when the World Trade Regime was founded. This is because at that time, many of them were still colonies. And even later, when they became independent and joined the World Trade Regime, their voice didn't necessarily have the equal weight. They did manage to, to change the rules in important ways. So they did manage to negotiate some um, exemptions for developing countries, but it didn't get as far as they would have wanted these changes to go. As, as you just mentioned, there was countries that joined uh, later and were more developing nations usually, or more developing economies, shall we say. What kind of status did they have coming in and what structural agreements could they come to uh, once, they're, once they were in the organizations or in the trade regime? Well, initially when they joined, they had exactly the equal status as the founding members of the GATT. And the basic principle when the GATT was founded is that there is formal equality. The same rules apply to everyone. And one would think 
this could make sense. It's intuitive. Like the same rules apply to everybody. Isn't that a fair principle? But when more and more former uh, colonies joined the world trade regime, they began to argue that they are in a structurally disadvantaged position in the global economy. And this is primarily due to the uh, economic structures put in place by colonialism. So a lot of these developing countries were exporters of um, primary goods to developed country markets. So in the 60s and 70s, when a lot of these countries joined, there was a rise of so-called dependency theory that was saying, well, if the same trade rules apply to all countries, this is actually not fair. And the idea behind dependency theory was that those countries in a marginalized position in the economy are actually disadvantaged and that there needs to be some structural change for them to be able to catch up and to get to a higher level of economic development. And that, that is why they were pushing for different rules for so-called developing country members. And they were successful in some ways. So this differentiation between developed and developing country members was added to the gut. And developing countries received a lot of exemptions. So it was possible that, well, the same rules apply to everyone except for <laughs> developing country members. So the basic idea of the gut is reciprocity. It means if I open your, my market, you open your market. And this is how we ensure we don't have a spike of protectionism that goes out of hand. But then because developing countries had a very strong claim that this is actually unfair uh, for given their structurally disadvantaged economic position in global trade, they received these exemptions and oftentimes were allowed to, to maintain protectionist measures with the aim of fostering their national economy to become more competitive and to catch up. But it wasn't as far-reaching as they would have wanted and they also wanted better market access in developed country markets. And for instance, in agriculture for a very long time, uh, there wasn't any movement on agricultural subsidies and this remains a very hotly uh, contested topic in WTO negotiations. What kind of examples of exemptions are we talking about? So in a new round of negotiating trade liberalization, all the countries come together and it is this tit for tat. Everybody has to open the markets and reduce tariffs and then it applies to everyone. And a lot of times on new liberalization commitments, developing countries were actually exempted. So they didn't have to open their markets, but they would still benefit from the better market access everybody else agreed upon. So this was um, a very far-reaching uh, exemption. In other areas, for instance, in agriculture, there are rules that stipulate how much you're allowed to subsidize um, your agricultural production. And for developed country members, there is a rule, it's roughly 5% of the value of agricultural production is what you can give in subsidies. And for developing countries, this is higher. It's 10%. But this is a good example where you have formal differential treatment that is meant to be in the advantage of developing countries. But if we look at the real world out there, the problem is developing countries often don't even have the capacity to subsidize the agricultural sectors. So even though they have high allowances, they are not subsidizing their sectors to the limit. While we do see that developed countries make full use of the margin they have, and since it's also relative to the economic production, 
in nominal terms, so how much money is spent, it's it's still going to be way more in the in the developed economies that have huge agricultural sectors because then 5% suddenly becomes a lot of money. Thank you for helping us uh, already well sketch out an image of what the what the WTO is and uh, how how historically disadvantaged economies have been given a special differential treatment if that's correct allowing them to hopefully better readjust but realistically there's also still a lot of structural issues in in that uh, in that sense. Can I ask you more about your your specific research on the WTO? Could you f- first maybe give us a, an introduction into, into what your research is? Yes, thanks a lot. Uh, so what you just mentioned, special and differential treatment, is this idea that developing country members get different treatment as compared to um, developed country members. And the starting point for... This research of mine has been the observation that the world is changing. So this, these rules were put in place, as I said, in the 60s and 70s, when it was fairly common to divide the world into these two binary blocks, developed and developing countries. But what we've seen in the past 15 years or so is that the global south is changing a lot and we do have a lot of so-called emerging economies Uh, the Brazil's, India's, China's of this world, uh, which somewhat fall in between these binary camps of developing or developed countries. So the question is, knowing that in, in world politics, these rules were put in place that are meant to compensate for disadvantage uh, for the developing world as a whole block. What is happening to these rules now that the world is becoming more complex And it may not be as easy anymore. I mean, it was always a social construct uh, to divide the world into these two camps and to say, like, these are the rules we're going to use to somewhat have a bit more fair treatment of members with different capacities in the World Trade Organization. So this was the starting point for the research. What is happening to these rules that are meant to compensate for disadvantage as the world is becoming more complex. And by the way, these rules don't just exist in the world trade regime, um, in the climate regime, but in many others. We do find differential treatment as part of world politics. And while in general, uh, powerful countries have more of a say in shaping the rules uh, as they see fit, there are these differential treatment schemes that are meant to somewhat compensate for disadvantage of some regime members. Okay, thank you very much. Could you maybe elaborate a bit more on on the difference between the established and the emerging powers kind of dynamic, specifically in regards to, to China, Brazil, and India, how this binary no longer really affects, uh, well, or is no longer as useful in, in the current complexity? I mean, there there are a lot of debates and how useful this binary is depends very much on the kind of measures you look at. If you look at aggregate economic power, so gross domestic products, all of the value that is produced in a country, we do see that power is shifting away from the West, the established powers, to the global south or more primarily uh, to the East. And this you can see that it was already in... 2014, PricewaterhouseCooper uh, made the study and they looked at the G7, so the seven economically strongest countries in the West and what their aggregate gross domestic product is, so the, the how much they produce together. 
and then they coined this term of um, emerging economies and looked at the seven upcoming emerging economies in the global south and how much they are producing as economies. And in 2014, they were already unequal. <laughs> and then they made a projection and said by 2050, we will actually see that the E7, so the emerging economies, will be double in size. So this already tells you that if you look at these aggregate numbers, economic power is shifting. And of course, if you take other numbers, if we look at income levels, um, income levels are still much, much lower in these emerging economies. This is because population sizes tend to be much larger. So power is shifting in some ways, but in others it is not. But as of today, China is already uh, the largest economy if measures in uh, purchasing power parity terms. So we do see there is economic power shifting away from the G7 towards these emerging economies in the global south. The World Trade Organization would decide if a country is emerging economic power or established power depending on its economic capacity. And now they want to change the exemptions that developing countries have because they will become developed uh, economies. Did I get it right? Yeah, one could think that this would make a lot of sense. Uh, but the interesting thing is that there are no criteria for how to classify who counts as a developing country or a developed country member in the World Trade Regime. And th it's been this way in the GATT and it's uh, still this way in the World Trade Organization. So the way it's uh, regulated is that countries self-declare the status they have and other members can contest it. But there are no, no clear-cut criteria. Of course, there's this implicit assumption that it's linked to economic criteria. This is the World Trade Organization. But because there are no criteria, this is exactly what is happening. A lot of members are saying, okay, we have these large emerging economies, and should we still treat them as developing countries in the same way as we look at smaller developing countries? Let's say, I don't know, Eritrea. Is Eritrea and China, are they really both disadvantaged in the global economy? And it really depends on the measure you're looking at. Um, because, of course, you can find a lot of measures where these emerging economies outperform other developing countries by far. But what the emerging economies are doing is they find other measures related, for instance, to poverty or per capita measures, where they say, like, but the gap to the developed economies is still pretty large, which is why we want to remain in this group. But basically, it's become a power struggle because, yes, these emerging economies on paper can still ask for the same exemptions as smaller developing countries. And with the world changing, there is a, there's one question, is this fair also to other developing countries? But it's also become part of this power struggle between emerging and established economies. The EU, the US and others, they're saying, like, why should we give flexibilities to China, a country that we see as an economic competitor and rival? So there's also been a push that these emerging economies give up their status that they self-declare as developing countries. And this is what this research has been about, to look at how do the emerging economies themselves respond to this pressure to give up the status um, as developing countries. 
Yeah, that was actually about to be my next question. So in your research, you talk about the different strategies that these countries employ. The three countries mentioned uh, China, India and Brazil. Could you maybe give us an outline of what the strategies are and how they differ? Yeah, I mean, let me first start with um, this is research conducted together with Till Schoefer. And he went to Geneva to, did, to do interviews with representatives from these countries and others. And we were actually surprised to hear how different the strategies are that the different countries are applying. Because the starting point is, I mentioned already, that established powers are pressuring emerging economies to give up the status. And especially the U.S. position has been, you are either a developing country or you are not. There is no in-between. And they propose clear criteria uh, with a threshold after which you would just graduate from the status. So there it's, it's black and white. There's really no in-between. And what we found uh, when engaging a bit more in what the emerging economies are doing is there is actually a lot of in-between and the countries are not either just defending the status or giving it away. And this led to this research paper we wrote uh, where we do find there is a large spectrum. And on the, on the one end, there is India, uh, which pursues what we refer to as a strategy of principled resistance. So India really is defending both the status, but then also in its negotiation practices, defending the right to have access to these flexibilities. So they are not willing to give in. On the other end, we do have Brazil. Brazil is saying, well, on status, in the future, we're not going to make use of the developing country status anymore, but we are still a developing country, but we, are not, we don't need to use it anymore. So it's a little bit complex what they're actually saying here. But we do see that in the negotiation practices, Brazil has been willing not to claim that it needs to compensate for disadvantage and that it needs these exemptions from trade liberalization obligations because it is a developing country member. So Brazil has been very um, pragmatic and accommodating. And then China, which is the largest economy, uh, is somewhere in between. So you can also see it doesn't necessarily just relate to economic size. So China, on the one hand, fiercely defends its right to self-declare itself as a developing country member. But in practice, it only uses this selectively in negotiations. And this is also because in sectors where China is very competitive, for instance, IT product sector, they don't think they need these exemptions or they don't think they are actually going to benefit from exemptions from liberalization. Because once you're competitive you may actually benefit from opening your markets more. So only where China sees a need to defend domestic markets do they use the developing country card. Mm -hmm. But this, this means that even looking just at three of these emerging economies, we find huge variation in, in the strategies of how they respond to this pressure to give up the developing country status. What would be the actual incentive for an emerging economy to take the status of established economy, is there is there even an incentive? And why would we even talk about these strategies now? Why did you do the research in the first place? And what is your conclusion of finding a gray area? Okay, let me start. Uh, let me start with the last question. 
So why why does it matter to find out that there is this gray area and it's not just either countries are a developing country and they act like one or they're a developed country and they don't claim any benefits anymore. And I think this is because there is a lot of contestation on how to reform the developing country status in the WTO. And it's part of the deadlock at the WTO that members disagree on what to do with this. And the U.S. prominently tabled this proposal that introduces the clear-cut criteria that would define who counts as a developing country and who wouldn't. And I think what our research shows is that this is not going to be the best way forward because we've seen a lot of resistance from emerging economies that also claim it's a historical right to have this developing country status and to address structural imbalances in the global trading system. So this is just going to lead to resistance. And given the WTO is consensus-based, it's very difficult to change the rules and to change them in a definite way. So what we see is that change is more likely to be gradual and to be more informal, because we do see that especially Brazil, but also to some extent China, are already adjusting the practices of when they are claiming developing country status rights, so to say. So I think any proposal um, that takes this into consideration and allows the countries also to maintain the status on paper uh, is more likely to be the way forward and to help resolve the deadlock in WTO negotiations. Because also, in the end, multilateralism is the forum where the interests of smaller countries are potentially better protected than in a world in which they just have to rely on bilateral trade negotiations where power asymmetries are more pronounced. So the deadlock that we see in the World Trade Organization, which is partly around this issue of something that is meant to be advantages for developing countries, is undermining any potential benefits they can negotiate in the future. Because right now, the established uh, bigger powers are not willing to grant exemptions or flexibilities to developing countries as a group if this includes emerging economies. So we just don't see any new rules on this, which is detrimental, especially for smaller developing countries. And are we moving towards setting out rules and criteria? Is this giving an incentive to the WTO to create criteria for developing and developed powers or economies? Well, this is what the U.S. attempted, and it has been going nowhere. But the current director general of the World Trade Organization, Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iviala, she has already indicated that she is not necessarily behind proposals that introduce clear-cut criteria and that it's better to push for voluntary changes and a little bit of a bottom-up change. So I think these debates need to continue because it's also creating pressure on countries to adjust their positions. But I don't think that a highly formalized um, proposal is going to resolve it, this issue and it's more likely to be negotiated away over the years as these countries uh, face also more pressure to yeah, justify, like, is it really fair if we receive the same flexibilities as smaller developing countries? But to go back to the question of what's the incentive for emerging economies to drop their self-identified uh, title of developing for identifying themselves as developed economies? 
there are not so many incentives, which is why most emerging economies have been reluctant to drop the status, but there are some. And first, it can be political incentives. I mean, you get the higher status, but you can also make it part of like a political bargain. So what we've seen with Brazil, for instance, uh, it was under the um, Bolsonaro presidency that Brazil declared that they are not going to use the developing country status in future negotiations. And at the time, Bolsonaro tried to make a political deal with President Trump from the U.S. and tried to give get U.S. backing of speeding up Brazil's um, membership, potential membership in the OECD. So it was meant to be a little bit of a political bargain. Okay, we're not going to defend our developing country status, but then please help us uh, that we become member of the OECD more quickly. So there can be some incentives on that front. And then, of course, in the end, a lot of this is also about the kind of economic model that your country has domestically. If you have a very liberal economy, you don't probably believe that it helps your country to make use of more protectionist measures as compared to developed country members of the World Trade Organization. And this is what we see, for instance, um, Brazil is a huge agricultural exporter. So in this area, they're not even making use of the subsidies they could to the fullest extent. And they are interested in, in a liberal global agricultural market because they are an exporter. So they don't see a need to claim this status. And for Brazil, it would actually be better if China and India drop the status and reduce the agricultural subsidies they are maintaining as developing country members because Brazil is exporting agricultural goods in particular to China. So there can be an interest in, in yeah, further liberalization. But then, again, it's a question of where do you stand on this million-dollar question of is it actually going to help you to develop economically if you open your markets or do you need to uh, have more industrial policy first and then open up the markets at a later stage? And China has a much more state-led capitalist system, so they are using much more state intervention to shape the economy in the way they want to see it going. So for them, the incentives to make use of the developing country status to justify some of these uh, state interventive measures are much higher, I would say, because of the specific economic development model they have in the domestic economy. Fair enough. <laughs> I actually wanted to ask you about the EU's position then. We've been talking that the US has been pressuring developing economies to claim the status of developed but then what's the EU's position? Are they also, is it also forcing these economies or pressuring these economies to change their status or no? I mean, the US has been most vocal about it and has also tabled the most concrete reform proposals. But the EU has also made some suggestions for WTO reform in general, where they do mention that special differential treatment and this question of who counts as a developing country need or should be reformed. So they are largely on board with the position of the U.S. that these larger emerging economies should slowly but surely give up the flexibilities that the developing country status comes with. But I would say they are not as vocal in pushing for it. Mm. We were just wondering if it's 
this pressuring to change the, the status, is it also another way for established powers to maintain their dominance in the uh, world trade regime? Or is it just a way to put all countries on an equal level? Or what's the politics in there? If I understand your question correctly, you're also asking me, is pushing these emerging ec economies out of the developing country status a way to maintain all power hierarchies, right? Mm -hmm. And in some ways, uh, it's of course part of this power struggle that we do see, and it's playing out very prominently in, in US-China relations. Because of course, I mean, these flexibilities give China a little bit of an advantage in some areas of global trade rules vis-a-vis -vis the US. For instance, when it comes to agricultural subsidies, China is just allowed to spend more agricultural subsidies because of the spe specific um, conditions it negotiated as a self-declared developing country member when it joined the World Trade Organization. So, of course, the U.S. is very concerned, like, why would we give these flexibilities to a country that we see as an economic competitor rather than a country with development challenges that needs these exemptions? But I think... The proposal from the U.S., for instance, wouldn't just ex exclude China, but 52 developing country members of the WTO from the status. And uh, even if we start looking at India, um, and you don't just look at aggregate economic measures, uh, poverty is, of course, still a, a serious challenge uh, in, in lots of part of Indian uh, society. So there are also some reasons why some of these countries are very reluctant to give up um, the status. But it's not just uh, part of the power struggle. I think what we see is that slowly but surely other developing countries are speaking up hesitantly. <laughs> but you can hear this, uh, a lot of this is just maybe in, in research interviews, so countries wouldn't put their name out there. And But they are starting to say like, look, it's actually unfair if, if the Chinas and Indias and Brazils out there get the same flexibilities as we do, we are competing with large economic powers. So we actually want more differentiation as well. Mm. So that would create more exemptions for countries who are in a more disadvantaged positions than China, Brazil and India. Is that what you mean? I mean, there are different ways to, to, to move forward. Mm. The U.S. is proposing these emerging economies just lose access to these uh, special rights altogether, right? What we've seen in other regimes and climate is that it just becomes more differentiated. So depending on the capacities you have and climate, for instance, you're expected to contribute more to mitigation measures and a similar, uh, similar system could also emerge in the World Trade Organization where countries at, uh, with higher economic capacities are willing to uh, let go of these flexibilities to a greater extent as compared to smaller economies. Mm -hmm. But in the end, this is also a question of justice. Like, how do you deal with inequalities among WTO members? The initial answer when the organization that was created was like, we don't care. There are no differences. Then the developing world said like, look, I think the same rules, this is not going to lead to fair outcomes. Uh, this is not how trade liberalization works. It's not actually just win-win as it's said in the textbook. 
And now the question is, okay, yes, there is a recognition that there are inequalities, but does this binary, either you're the developing world or the developed world, do justice to a more complex uh, reality in, in the global power shift out there? Or do we need new rules that are maybe more differentiated and can account more for the very different economic positions that many countries in the global south are in? But of course, you can politicize it so easily that every argument you make is in the name of, of justice, but you can also hide your own national interests behind it. Thank, thank you. That, that was very, uh, very illuminating. This brings us actually to our last section of the podcast, and that's the secondary sources, where we'd like to offer you a, an opportunity to maybe give us or give the listener um, something more to dig their teeth in if they were interested in the topic. Well, if you're interested in the specific topic of the strategies that Brazil, India, and China adopt, Till Schoefer and me have written this journal article in International Affairs. It's open access. Uh, you can look it up. But another thing that I would like to mention is um, a project that came out of this research on World Trade Organization politics, and it's an online gallery with trade diplomats. It's called Faces of Trade Diplomacy, and the idea behind it is that Okay, you've now, if you made it to the end of the podcast, you seem to be somewhat interested in trade politics. But when we talk about trade, a lot of people shy away and feel like this is very technical and it has nothing to do with me. I don't even know what's going on. So to make trade politics more relatable with the photographer Chantel Gomez, um, we went to the WTO, we did portraits with trade diplomats from many different countries that negotiate these agreements and that negotiate things such as the developing country status and what's going to happen with it in the future. And we also asked about them about their motivations, but also what's going on with trade multilateralism. So if you're interested in, in this more personal perspective on some of these topics um, that we covered in the podcast, I urge you to check it out. Uh, it's www.facesoftrade.org. Any mentioned uh, links will also be in the description of this podcast. Thank you very much, Clara Reinhardt. Uh, very much appreciate you coming on and sharing about your research and uh, illuminating us on what the W2 actually really is. Thanks a lot for having me. And uh, that brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. The music for the MD podcast episode has been produced by Stone Ocean. And this podcast episode has been produced, recorded, and edited by Brendan Hogan and yours truly, Sharal Abdullah. Talk to you soon. <laughs>